Find 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We will pick up where we left off last. Seems like it's been a long time, doesn't it? Let's see, it's been, I guess, three weeks ago tonight since we went in 1 Thessalonians. Is that right? So we're in chapter 5 tonight. Living in light of the day of the Lord. Living in light day of the Lord. A lot of o- overlap tonight with this past Sunday. Yeah. Tons of overlap. I got one? Thank you, guys. Living in light of the day of the Lord. Paul says, beginning there, verse 1, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You know, there's always been a lot of curiosity about the second coming of Christ. This dates back hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, uh, as people approached the year 1000 A.D., there was a great deal of turmoil in Europe that this generated because people were expecting the end of the world when the calendar turned over 1,000 A.D. Uh, Well, in the 14th century, widespread plagues and famines led many people to think the same, that we must be at the end. Uh, More recently, in 1988, how many got the book in the mail? 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come Back in 88 by Edward Wisnett. You got that, some of you? Well, obviously, Jesus didn't come back in 88, so Wisdom went back and revised his book and said he's coming back in 1989. (laughs) Well, he didn't come back in 1989, so he went back and revised it again and gave other dates that 
came and went at the same time. Just unbelievable how some people do that. Well, most recently, what happened in our remembrance? 2000. 2000, exactly. A new millennium. That raised a bunch of questions. And, and some people were saying things like, if a thousand years with the Lord is as one day, and the Lord worked six days in creating the world and rested on the Sabbath, then the year 2000 may be the year Jesus comes. Uh, it was based on the belief that Genesis 1 can be dated approximately to 6,000 years ago. Uh, 6,000 years would be like six days to God with the turn of the calendar from 1999 to 2000. You move out of six millennia into the seventh millennium, which to God would be like moving into the seventh day, a Sabbath day. And because of what the Hebrew says uh, about the fact that there remain, the, the book of Hebrews says that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, speaking of when God comes for his people, uh, when we'll be together, there was speculation that January 1 of 2000 might usher in that eternal Sabbath rest. So even, you know, within the past 23 years, we've seen this kind of guessing going on. And all of this we know is very foolish because Jesus said, as we looked at this past Sunday, we will not know. He even made that startling statement that he doesn't know, that only the Father in heaven knows. But again, curiosity continues. In Acts 1, when Jesus had been raised from the dead and is with his disciples and about to ascend to heaven, uh, they're asking Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They wanted to know. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons but you shall be filled with power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost ends of the world. What was Jesus saying? Guys, don't worry about all this. Get to work. There's work to be done and that's what you're to be busy on. Not endless speculation about when I'm going to come again. Now, we've already seen that the Thessalonians were curious about end-time events. Last time we met and went over uh, chapter 4, they were worried about their loved ones who have died before Jesus comes back. And their concern was that uh, are we, are our loved ones going to miss something? Because they're already dead, are they going to miss something? And Paul assured them, no, they're not going to miss anything. They're with Jesus right now. When Jesus comes for those who are alive, when he does return, he's going to bring them with him. You don't need to worry about them. He's not lost them. Uh, that's what they were concerned about. Well, now as we move into chapter 5, Paul takes up discussion of end-time events from a whole new perspective. What about judgment? If our saved loved ones who have passed are safe in the arms of the Lord, what about people who are alive? What about us? What about judgment for those who don't know Christ? Uh, if we can all just know when it is, 
when he's coming back, maybe all of us could be more ready, more prepared. And so whereas he's spoken of believers being snatched away or raptured up to meet the Lord in the air, which is good, of course, uh, now he turns to look at the flip side of that, which is judgment for the unbeliever when the rapture occurs. But folks, I've got to say that his purpose in writing is not simply to point out the horrors of what life will be like then for unbelievers. And that's true. It'd be terrible. But he's keeping his focus on the church here. He says to the church, basically, since you know that you will not fall into the terrifying judgment of the Lord, how should you be living now? How can you be more ready? You're to be living in gratitude to the Lord. You're to be living in the light. That's how you're to get ready for that day. Rather than trying to figure out when it's going to be, concentrate on living a godly life now and living in the light. Because again, if you do that, it doesn't matter what the day is. Now, almost always when the return of the Lord is spoken of in the Bible, the emphasis is that believers are to be encouraged and comforted. And also it's emphasized that we're not to be living in such a way that we will be ashamed at His coming. John in 1 John 2.28 says we are to abide in the Lord so when He comes, we will not be found ashamed. Well, what's Paul say about all of this? Uh, first of all, I want you to notice from the first two verses, he says the, the day of the Lord will come suddenly. Suddenly. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so very clearly there's this shift in focus away from discussion about what will happen to Christians, and now the focus is on what's going to happen in the world. Uh, now, the day of the Lord is consistently used in the Bible referring to the judgment of God when He comes. And there's references in the Old Testament to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord was bad. Now, what I mean by bad is it stands for the terrible judgment of God poured out on an unbelieving world. It's something to fear if you don't know God. In Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, Amos said, Woe to you. I mean, just listen to these words of honor. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for that day? It will be a day of darkness and not light. It will be like somebody running from a lion and being met by a bear. Also, Malachi 4, another example of the Old Testament speaking about that day. Uh, Malachi says, See, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stumbled. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And so the, in the Old Testament, a lot of them were wanting the day of the Lord, and Amos and Malachi and other prophets said, Do you really know what you're asking for? Because many of you desire that are not ready for that day. And it's going to be a terrible day of judgment. Well, 
the New Testament continues this thing that the day of the Lord is going to be a time of judgment. Now folks, I want you to keep something in mind. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and following points out that the judgment of God is even now being poured out on the world. Paul says when we see people doing what we see people doing in society, we can know they have rejected God's Word and they've adopted their own version of the truth. And as a result, God gives them over to a depraved mind and depraved passions. And so he says, when you see people doing these things they're doing in society, you can know that God is already judging. God's turning people over to go their own way. And that's not something you want God to do, to turn you over to go your own way. And so judgment is now. Yes, it's future, but it's also now. Yes, it'll happen on the day of the Lord, but it's happening even now. And when believers meet the Lord in the air, there's going to be a terrible time of judgment on unbelievers. What will be a blessing to Christians will be a time of horror and fear and condemnation for unbelievers. Now, Scripture is teaching when, when this happens, when we're called up to meet the Lord in there, the, the day of the Lord begins. Things begin unrolling. Uh, when we're raptured up, you know, we see the Lord, we see our loved ones, but judgment is poured out on unbelievers. And so it's like two sides of the same coin. Blessing the Christians judgment to unbelievers. Two sides of the same coin. Now let me be honest about something. There, You know, we've talked about it, there are differences here. There's good and godly believers on both side. sides. Some believe that the church will go through the tribulation. Uh, we're going to go through it even now and Christians will be protected from the wrath of God in the midst of it. Uh, even if they die, they'll be protected from the wrath of God. Uh, and one illustration that's used of that is Israel in Egypt when God sent all the plagues on Egypt. Uh, Israel was there, but they were protected from those things. Other believers think that the church will be raptured out and held in a safe place while seven years of God's wrath is poured out on the world. Both positions are valid positions. Uh, in verse 1 here, Paul says times and seasons. Concerning the times and seasons, brothers, the first word is simply referring to calendar time. The second word emphasizes all of the events surrounding calendar time. So times, amount concerning the times is the word chronos, and seasons is kairos. Now concerning Chronos and Kairos, times and seasons. That's what he's speaking of. Uh, he's saying they know all about this because he himself has taught them these things. And he's taught them what Jesus has also told us. Jesus taught his disciples that the day of the Lord would come 
as a thief in the night. Look at verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Write down Luke 17, verses 26 to 36. Luke 17, 26 to 36. And then Matthew 24, 42 to 44. And then this past Sunday morning, we looked at Mark chapter 13. And in all those passages, Jesus talks about His coming being like a thief in the night. Now, a thief comes when? When he's not expected. You know, that's the problem with thieves. They don't send us a postcard letting us know when they're going to break into our house. Shame on those thieves. They don't let us know. Well, the world goes on thinking all is well and tomorrow's going to be just like today. Jesus said uh, in the Olivet Discourse, people are going to be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. What's he talking about there? People are just going to be going on about their daily lives as they always have. Folks, I want you to think about that. People, people are just, their focus, many people, their focus is where? Work. It's on work. Self. What? On themselves. Themselves. The things of the world. That's where, that's where so many people's focus is, right? They're just going about day to day minding the affairs of this world because it's really all they have. And then right in the middle of their activity one day or one night, what's going to happen? Lord's going to come back. Lord's going to come back. It's going to come sudden. It's going to happen at a time none of us will expect. We need to be prepared ahead of time for this. When it happens, there's not going to be any time to get ready. <laughs> and that's the point of the parable about the virgins, the five who were wise and the five who were foolish. You know, these wedding celebrations back then, the, the bride would have her friends and family at her place, and the groom would have his friends and family at his place. And sometimes these wedding celebrations went on literally for a solid week. Seriously. And uh, then the groom's party, when it was time, they would have callers who would go ahead to the brides and say everything's now ready. And uh, the bride's party, they would get their torches and have this great procession in the night of lit torches through the streets going back to the groom's place where the wedding would take place. And these five foolish ones discover they don't have oil. They're not ready. And so they go out to try to get it. The, the, the wedding party goes on, goes to the groom's, wedding takes place, they go in, the door's shut. These five, they find their oil, they, get, they, they come back and knock, and what are they told? The door's shut. It's too late. It's too late. Folks, when the Lord comes back, there's, there's no getting ready. Paul 
Paul says, in fact, it's going to be in the twinkling of an eye. And as Greek scholars will point out, the twinkling of an eye is even a whole lot faster than the blink of an eye. If you're darting your eyes around the room, and I mean the, the millisecond that your eye lands on somebody and you recognize them, that millisecond, that's the twinkling of an eye. Even faster than a blink. That's how fast it's going to be. And there'll be no chance to get ready. There'll be no second chance. It's going to happen like a thief coming. And it's also going to be a time, uh, Paul says here in verse 3, involving destruction. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. When this happens, what are many people in the world going to be thinking? We're secure. We're at peace. We're in, we're in comfort. Everything's going well. In other words, they're not expecting anything like this to happen. It's going to be a surprise. And verse 3 says there's going to be sudden destruction. And he changes the analogy here. He changes the analogy from a thief to what? A woman in labor. And what a powerful analogy that is. Points out several things. Once labor pains begin, folks, a birth is inevitable, right? I've heard stories of these ladies saying, no, doctor, stop it. Stop. <laughs> As though you can stop. No, a baby is coming. <laughs> once, once, this, once this happens, it's going to be completed before it's said and done. You don't know when the day of the Lord will be. It's like a thief who comes in surprise, but once it happens, there's going to be an outcome just like a woman in labor. And labor pains grow in intensity. And that's how God's judgment is going to be on this earth. And that's precisely what we see in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. That we see the seals being broken. And then after the seals, what do we see next? The trumpet blast sounding. And then what do we see after the trumpet blast? We see the bowls. There's, there's some recapitulation going on here. John, John likes to do that. Some, some overlap. Recapitulation. But building in intensity. The seals being broken. The trumpets being blown. The bowls being poured out. Uh, with a growing intensity. That's what's going to happen. That's the sudden destruction that's going to take place. And that's what Paul wants the church at Thessalonica to understand. But again, he wants them to understand that it's, it's going to happen so quickly. We, we won't know when it is, it, but it's going to happen suddenly. You can't plan for it. Once it happens, eternal, eternal states are fixed. There's, there's, there's no changing anything then. There's no getting ready. 
But a second thing he wants them to understand in verses 4 and 5 is God's children will escape. Notice what he says here. But you, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. What's he say here? We're not in darkness. Now, let me approach this from a couple of angles. First of all, we're not ignorant of these things. We can't plead ignorance. We're accountable. Why? Because God's told us in His Word. We're not in the dark. We're not ignorant. God's told us. But even more importantly about this, that we're not in darkness, you need to understand something. Once Jesus came, He ushered in a new age, a kingdom of light. John says in John 1.5 that in Him was light, and the light is shining, and the darkness can't overcome it. Christ has ushered in a new period of light. We aren't in the darkness or in the shadows. He has come. He has arrived. He announced the kingdom of God is at hand. God has shined His light in Jesus as never before. And those who are in Jesus, in Christ, you walk in light. And we're to turn from the darkness of the world that we used to walk in and we're to walk in the light because now we're children of the light, the light that Christ has brought. And in verse 4, he goes on to say, we will not be overtaken. We're not going to be like those in Noah's world who were suddenly overtaken by the flood. And so when this happens, you shouldn't act like this is all sudden news that has overtaken you because, again, God's told us ahead of time. Somebody says, well, but I've never read about all this in the Bible. Well, whose fault is that? That's your fault if you've not read about it because God's told us. We're accountable for it. Again, he emphasizes, we're children of the light. Verse 5, we have salvation through Jesus who's paid our sin debt. Jesus took on all of the punishment and wrath against sin, and he died for us on the cross. What's Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 5.21? He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that wonderful? A wonderful exchange. Paul says in Romans 8.1, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Folks, our status before God has changed. We were enemies of God. But God has reconciled enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our status is different if we're in Christ. We're reconciled to God. We're not enemies anymore. What did Jesus say to His disciples? I, I call you friends now. A new status. Walking in the light. This is who you are now in Christ. Even if you don't always live saintly, what's the Bible say? We're saints. We're set apart now. Isn't that wonderful? 
Our status, our position before God has changed. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Now we've been forgiven through Christ. He shed His blood for us. He's redeemed us. He's reconciled us to a holy God. A God who now even calls us friends. And we've been adopted into His family. And we cry out, Abba, Father. A new status. Walking in the light. We're in the light. We're children of the light. Again, we're not in darkness. We will not be overtaken. We're children of the light. And so Paul is emphasizing here that God's children are going to escape this destruction that comes upon unbelievers. But then thirdly, he goes on to say, though we will escape, we are to be ready. He says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Clearly, he had not been to America in 2023 when he said that. Because people, they get drunk any time of the day. But anyway, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet. Uh, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. So what's Paul saying? Knowing we're children of the light, knowing we're going to escape destruction, knowing that we're not going to be overtaken, knowing that we're not in darkness, does this mean we just sit back and bask in the glory of what God has done for us? No. We are to live with a state of expectancy. How? Well, notice how Paul plays off burglars' actions. They come at night while people are asleep or while people are out partying and drunk. And so as God's people... We're to be the opposite of how the world is, spiritually speaking. We're to be awake. We're to be alert and sober. We are to live as we do in the daytime. I mean, look at all of these admonitions. Verse 6, don't be asleep, but watch. Now, the metaphor of sleep changes here uh, from chapter 4 because remember in chapter 4 it referred to what? Death, exactly. Here, it refers to spiritual apathy and complacency. Folks, we're to be diligent. Romans 12, 11, Paul says, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Hosea 10, 12 says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till He comes and rains righteousness on you. We're to be diligent. We're not to be apathetic. We're to be awake. We're not to be like the church at Sardis, for example, in Revelation chapter 3. Does anybody remember what the Lord Jesus said about that church and what His admonition to them was? What was it that they needed to do? They needed to wake up. Be alert. Be alert. Now what was so interesting about that word, the Sardis? 
is because of what had happened in their history. There was an old city up on a hill and a newer city down in the valley. The old city was perceived to be so secure, enemies didn't have a chance of attacking because they couldn't get up to it. Well, Cyrus, the Persian king, he attacked Sardis in 549 B.C. and after 14 days of failure, he got his troops together and made a deal with them. Special rewards for whatever man could figure out a way that they could get up there, go over the walls of the city, and capture it. So one of his soldiers was watching one night, and the soldiers were hidden. The enemy up there didn't, didn't know what all was how they were being watched. A soldier up top dropped his helmet over the wall one night, and it fell down the cliff. He climbed over, and, and he hunted and pecked down a, a pathway that those up there knew about and retrieved his helmet and went back up. Well, that night, that soldier of Cyrus's got the troops together and led a bunch of them together. They went up there and went over the wall. And guess what they found when they went over the wall? The soldiers were sleeping. They didn't think they had anything to worry about. And you know what's strange about that? It happened again in 218 B.C. under Antiochus the Great. Now, not Antiochus the the Epiphanes, but before him, Antiochus the Great in 2.18. Almost the identical thing happened again. And his troops were able to overtake Sardis. Why? Because everybody, including the soldiers, were asleep. Twice they had lost their city because they were asleep and they wouldn't wake up. And so what's Jesus say to the church at Sardis? Wake up! And I'm sure as they heard those words because of their history, that, that would have been a, a powerful admonition. Well, that's what Paul is saying to the church at Thessalonica here. You know, you're going to escape all this sudden destruction. You don't have to fear that. You know, your loved ones are with the Lord now. They're safe. But the last thing you're to do is to sit back and sleep and be complacent and apathetic. You need to wake up. And again, playing off that burglar imagery, if you know, if you were awake, a burglar couldn't come unexpectedly. And then and look at what he goes on to say in verse 6 there too. Uh, let us keep awake and be sober. Now, is sober here just simply saying, don't be drunk? No, in the Bible it can also mean just level-headed, controlled. Sober, living with discernment and a sobriety about your life. And then he says, put on the full armor of God, in verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What are all of these images here of? It's about people who are like soldiers who are ready for battle. Paul says that's how the church is to be living now. As we think about the coming of the Lord. 
We're not to just say, you know, hey, I'm safe and my loved ones are safe, so the rest of the world can just go to hell, literally, for all I care. I'm safe. Us four, no more. Hey, I'm good. <coughs> Think it's easy for Christians to live that way sometimes? Every day. Every day. I'll say, no. We're to be like soldiers of the Lord. Awake, alert, conducting ourselves in sobriety, being self-controlled. We're ready for battle. We're ready for action. Think about that. If there's some complacency in your life, think about that. What He's calling us to do. And then in verse 11, he goes on to say, we're to comfort and encourage one another. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Folks, we've got reasons to encourage one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ, because again, we've been spared the coming wrath. Look at what Christ has done for us. Look at what's prepared for us when he does come to get us. If you die first, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We've got every reason to be encouraged as the people of God. And so what should we be doing? Encouraging one another. Building one another up. Well, what are some lessons we can apply to all of this? The day of the Lord is approaching. There's no stopping it. The Lord will bring this current age to an end at the right and proper time. Secondly, Christians do not have to fear the day of the Lord. And thirdly, Christians are to prepare for the day of the Lord by living now in the light of the Lord. Rich, rich passage. Anything you want to add tonight or comment on? We went through it pretty quickly tonight. We could be encouraging each other. Yes. Amen. And so dependent on the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. You can't do it. You can't grit your teeth and just say, I'm going to do Grin and bear it. Yeah, you can't do that. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. And dependence on Him. Yep. Yeah. Now, you need to know about the prophet uh, uh -huh. and uh, what interesting thing about that is, is the Virgin didn't know when the Father was going to approve <coughs> his Adam addition to the house. Where she was going to be brought to. Right. He wasn't going to be told until the dad told him, okay, it's ready now, you get the bride. Yeah. You know, and that's when he was Christ. And sure. Um, that illustration fits perfectly. Sure. Yep. Yeah. This resurrection is the full, the full body resurrection, right? Um, the, Yes. Yeah. Yes. And when uh, we get on the horses, and is that the battle I'm getting? We follow Jesus in the 
Yeah, you're speaking of Revelation 19 when the Lord comes on the horse and his sword and, and his people with him. That's Revelation 19. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. One thing we talked about when we studied in Sunday school is the fact that there's no gray. It's light, it's dark. Yeah. You can't be in the middle, so there ain't no middle. And you know that says something about how too many Christians will live today. Yes. One foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. Right? I mean, let's be honest. One foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. Go along to get along. Go along to get along. Yeah. There's a lot of churches like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, my question is this. Um, Going off on either you're saved or you're not saved. Uh -huh. You have to be baptized. Do you what? You have to be baptized because if you accept Christ, if you, Christ says if you acknowledge Him and confess your sins, then you shall be saved. Sure. The baptism, as I understand it, is the gift of receiving the Holy Spirit. It's not a gift. For, it's not to seal your salvation. It's to give you a relationship with the Holy Spirit. So if you're not baptized. And many churches don't baptize. They sprinkle at an early age. Mm -hmm. So where there's no, a, a baby or a child doesn't, is not at the age of accountability, so therefore they don't have to be saved at that time. Many churches that do that, I believe there are saints within those, those, those churches uh, doing great disciple work. But are they, are they saved or are they not saved? Well, a couple of different questions there. The first one related to baptism. Uh, the one related to baptism, do you have to be baptized to be saved? Uh, I assume you're talking about water baptism. The answer would be no. Now, some churches hold to baptismal regeneration. Uh, we don't. To me, that's, uh, that's part of Paul's whole debate. Like to the Galatians. The Galatian heresy. They thought something needed to be added to Jesus. And it's interesting, the passage some of those churches will use demanding that you do have to be baptized uh, to be saved. Uh, they'll use Mark 16. Because they love verse 16 there. Here's what it says. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And they'll say, see there, there it is. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But in the canons of logic, you've got to keep going. What's he say next? If they were true, if they were right, look at the next phrase, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. What would that need to what would it need to be said? Uh, what would it need to say? If, if, if they were right. They, it would need to say, but whoever does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. Because it just said whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So their, their verse that they use there falls apart. It caves in on itself. Uh, the thief on the cross. Yeah, the thief on the cross couldn't have been baptized. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. 
Right. From being baptized. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's not required. Now, what happens at conversion, we're, we're baptized by the Holy Spirit at conversion, which is God's seal of ownership on Ephesians 1.13. That's his seal of ownership upon us. We're baptized in the Spirit. Some are waiting to be baptized in the Spirit later on. Uh, a second touch of grace. No, we're, we're filled with the Spirit many times. But we're baptized once, and that, that happens at our conversion. At our conversion, God seals us with His Holy Spirit as a down payment of more to come. Did you receive the Holy Spirit at the time of baptism? No. At the time of conversion. Time of salvation. But doesn't doesn't Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 1, where where Jesus follows the disciples, he tells them, in a few days, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Uh And then later on in chapter 1, I think Paul is on his way to from Ephesus to Galatians or, or Colossians or somewhere. And he runs into two disciples, and he asks the two disciples if they've been baptized. And he, they said, "We've been baptized by John with water." Mm-hmm. And he says, "No, no, I'm talking about the the baptism for the Holy Spirit. We must rush now to go baptize you in the Spirit." That is the receiving of the Spirit, right? Well, if you'll re- if you'll dig into that passage, those guys weren't even saved until Paul dealt with them. They had, they had been told about John's righteousness and John's baptism. And they had been baptized by John. By John. But they, they did not understand about Jesus, and so they went on to explain the way of the Lord to them, and they believed and were baptized. Okay, they were only baptized with John's baptism, and that's why it says they were... They, were, they, okay. they baptized them after they believed. So they were not... The original disciples, they were just disciples. Because he calls them out as the disciples. Right. They were disciples of John. Okay. They had only followed John. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so okay. I think I understand. We should boy Danny. I've been wrestling with that. So okay. Well, isn't baptism just a symbol to everyone mm-hmm. else? It's a, it's a, it's a symbol. It, it, is, it is the gospel in right. picture. Right. Because as you lower a candidate into the water, it's, it, it's showing our union. We're, we're buried with Christ and we're raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. And it's a symbol to our old way is gone, our old life gone and buried and dead. And we're raised to walk in newness of life that Christ brings. But it's showing that union with Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. So it's 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 a proclamation of the gospel in, in a symbol, in an ordinance. Just yeah, yeah. In the early church, somebody's baptism was a profession of faith. As far as we know, they didn't walk an aisle like we do today and. Introduce somebody before the congregation schedule their baptism six weeks from now or something. You're baptized. You're public <clears throat> baptism, and the questions asked of the candidate in the pool—that's your profession of faith before the body of Christ. The way the rubber meets the road is not how much of the Holy Spirit do I have, but how much of me does the Holy does Spirit have. have. That's yeah. where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. 
Well, Did that answer that? Uh, yeah. yeah, but I think you and I need to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but when the Lord saves it, or justified, makes us right with God, then he changes our water, and we want to be baptized. Sure. Because right. sure. Jesus gave us It's the first, first step of obedience. And yeah. that is a sign that, yeah, I'm, I'm giving you my total being. Yeah. And I desire to do out of obedience. And you gave me a great example because Jesus did that. So, you First step to. of obedience. It doesn't save you. Just like the Jews tried to say, well, it's, it's you got to be circumcised. Right. You can't add anything to it. Right, right because when you do the baptism, if you do the baptism in a, in a step to be saved, it's actually a work, and that removes, exactly. that nullifies the gift of the of grace that God's given you. Sure. And that, and that's why I said earlier for churches today who require it for salvation, I, I think they need to study the Book of Galatians, because the Judaizers were insisting that circumcision was needed in addition to Jesus, and Paul was saying that's no gospel. That's no gospel at all. I'll send you an email. Phil told that eunuch that uh, if he had done accepted Christ basically as a savior, then he would be permitted to be baptized. Right. You know, sure. The baptism was conditioned, conditioned upon. And that's a good point. Conditioned upon his belief and conversion. Not a requirement along with us. Say what? I opened up a whole can of worms. <laughs> no, not really. I think I think scripture's pretty straightforward on that. Actually.